Good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. We're going to turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. For those who'd like to be involved with Junior Church, it's up through grade 4 now. So grade through grade 4, if you have a little one you'd like to have downstairs in an age-appropriate service, they can be down there with them. You're welcome to keep them here as well. We have a church full of children, and we love them wherever they are. So you can keep them with you. You can put them downstairs. Your choice, parents. For the rest of you, if you'd like, turn in 1 Corinthians to chapter 7. And as I said many times to you, I hope this is not the first time you've been in the Word this week because you're starving this morning if it is. And my desire for you, obviously, is that you take up uh, the Word and study it for yourself, that you might benefit each day as the Lord has ordained for you to do just that, to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. We really would love for you to do that because the Holy Spirit has one purpose and one will. And as we're all in the Word together, we begin to know exactly what that is. So make that part of your weekly and daily routine. If you need a Bible reading calendar that can help you stay on track to go through the Bible verse by verse in a year, we have those available to you back in the back. Love for you to take advantage of that. We are in a continuing study through uh, the book of, books of First and Second Corinthians. In particular, we've called it God's plan for the healthy church. As you've uh, no doubt read through First and Second Corinthians before, you recognize the multitude of problems that the church faced. Church still faces them now. They're not that much different than we are today, of course. And as we go through these things, some help us to avoid the problem and others help us to treat the problem. And the Holy Spirit takes this word and uses it as he sees fit. In particular, we are looking at, as we look at uh, verse seven, chapter 7 and, and the last part of chapter 6, uh, as we worked our way through the summer, we're looking at singleness in marriage. And in particular, in chapter 7, we're looking at Q&A with the Apostle Paul. And if you ever thought, I would sure like to sit down with the Apostle Paul and ask him a bunch of questions, well, from chapter 7 all the way through the end of chapter 11, that's exactly what happened. The church wrote Paul a letter and had a lot of questions about life, and perhaps some of these will be questions that you may have. And so, very beneficial to us, and the key, I guess, to understanding chapter 7, because all we get is the answers, is to understand then what that answer is, what Paul based that answer on, and then a little bit of the culture and the things that were going on in Corinth at the time, and we can come up with the approximate question. So that's what we're going to do today. And Lord willing, I'm planning on getting through chapter 7 and finishing chapter 7 this morning, so uh, we will work our way through and do that today, Lord willing. Let's pray. Would, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you today for time in your word. We, we know we've been uh, to your throne numerous times this morning, privately and corporately to seek your blessing and to give you honor and to submit ourselves to you. We do it again. I do it now for my own sake. There's nothing that I'm about to say, Father, of my own power that will do anything inside the lives of anyone who hears. Only what you say and what you do by your Holy Spirit. And so I give you full permission, as you've already had, and you know this as, we, as I prepare these messages each week, to do what you will with us. You have the right you have the right to deal with us in blessing. You have the right to deal with us in chastening. And Lord, I pray that you'll deal with us in instruction and correction, that we might understand your word and we might apply it, that we might be faithful to do that, as Paul reminds us later in this chapter, that it's all about obeying you, uh, regardless of the situation that we're in. And Father, I pray that that'll be the case. You'll help me to do that, that your word will go out in power, return to you, not void, but accomplishing everything you said and sent it to do. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. We made our way last time through verse 7, but what I'm going to do, just to make sure we're all on the same page, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the Word. Uh, we had our children's program last week. It was a blessing to us to go through the Romans Road and see them memorize all of that. 
And we're going to pick up verse by verse. And what we've done, as we led up to chapter 7, what I'd like to do, I wanted to do through the summer, if you've not been here with us, uh, Paul has a lot of assumed knowledge. As he gives the church instruction in chapter 7, he assumes a lot of knowledge. And I wanted to make sure that we had the same knowledge that Paul's assuming the church in Corinth had. So what we did is we went through Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, and looked at God's ideal for relationships, both for marriage and for singleness. And, of course, as we went through that passage, we recognized that Jesus did not deal with all the exceptions. He didn't deal with all the possible circumstances that we find in life. He affirms God's ideal, one man for one woman, no other options. He gives us an example of what it looks like as a powerful link, and we look back in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 to see what that looked like and the wording there. And then he made a very clear statement, God made marriage, so he says, it's my craftsmanship, don't divorce. Marriage is praiseworthy, it's for life. We saw to stay married, divorce only in one kind of circumstance, and only that in hard-hearted unrepentance. Don't stay out of marriage, it's very important, as Jesus was teaching in Matthew 19, don't stay out of marriage because it's a lifetime commitment. Get into it because it's a lifetime commitment. And that was really our background study. But like I said, it doesn't deal with all the exceptions. It doesn't deal with the situations which we find ourselves. And if for some reason or another we found we've missed God's ideal, it doesn't deal with all the questions. So now, as it was then, people look at their lives and compare them to God's ideal. And it's easy to think, as you look at God's ideal, say, what do I do now? And so if we've missed that ideal for one reason or another, we need a place we can turn. And one of those places is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This particular church wrote Paul a letter. The culture that proffered every type of relationship is okay. Uh, almost all of it centered around the physical, intimate relationship. And all these people were coming to Christ and coming into the church. They're brand new believers. Paul has this audience here that he pastored for 18 months. And so with all this baggage, they come in from life. Uh, and so we don't have all the questions from the letter. We just have the answers. And we start with the answers. And we work our way through with what we know about the culture, what we know about the assumed knowledge, and Matthew 19 and the things that we filled in in the background, and we come up with the questions. And the first question that we saw, and I'll just do this very quickly, is this. Is physical intimacy ungodly? And the answer to that from Paul was no. So look at verse 1, and we'll just explain it quickly and read through verse 7. Look at verse 1, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. I'll be reading from the New American Standard, and I'll give you verse cues so you can stay with me in whatever version you're reading and study. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, obviously, they wrote a letter. We, we came up with that, and we understand that to be the case. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Verse 2, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 6, but this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter and another in that. So Paul's answer to the question, is physical intimacy ungodly? Paul's answer is no. Not within the bounds of marriage, it's certainly not. In fact, it's a good thing. In fact, acting single inside the bonds of marriage is a bad thing. So within the bonds of marriage, it's excellent. And we saw that marriage is for most people. So as Paul ended up verse 7, he ended up really the same way Jesus did in Matthew 19, which is there's certain gifting, a gift for singleness, a gift for marriage. Each man has his own gift. Paul says, 
some with this manner and some in that. Some of you will be like I am, Paul's single. Some of you will be married. Marriage is good. Singleness is good. So, if you stay single, it'll be because it's a gift from God. We saw that from Matthew 19, and we saw that from verse, the first seven right here. That's going to be a gift from God if you're single, and it's honorable, and you remain single for the advancement of the kingdom. That's the reason you remain single. And that's why we said, as we looked at Matthew 19, that a reason to remain single is not that you want to avoid a lifetime commitment. That is not the reason to remain single. The reason to remain single would be that you've been given that gift from the Lord. Question number two for Paul, as we finished with this one last time. If we've been married before, should we remarry? If we've been married before, should we remarry? And we picked up in verse 8. You could look there with me if you would. The first part of the answer. But I say to the unmarried and to widows. And we defined those terms last time, so you can catch up with that extra study online. Just two different types of singleness addressed here. The first ones are those who were married and divorced before salvation. And we gave you all the background there last time. And the second are single uh, by the death of a spouse. So you have the unmarried and you have the widows. Some who were married before salvation and now come into salvation unmarried but have a marriage in the background that ended in divorce. And the second one is single by the death of a spouse. So Paul says, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I. And once again, Paul calls them to singleness. So he says, if you have the gift of singleness, and they're, of course, just finding out what their spiritual gifting really is because they're brand new believers. So if they are, have the gift of singleness, Paul says, if you have that gift, which would come with the freedom from the desire to be married and the temptations of the physical relationship. Those are all together with the gift. Part of self-control that the Holy Spirit gives to those he's given the gift of singleness. So you don't have the desire to be married. You don't have the temptations of the physical relationship. If you have that giftedness, you might want to explore whether you do. As you come into salvation, you're discovering your spiritual gift. Maybe you have the same spiritual gift that I have, Paul says, and you can be single. Okay, so that's always Paul's first stop is if you have the gift of singleness, stay single. And it's always for the advancement of the kingdom. Now, question number two, if we've been married before, should we remarry? Verse 9 is the second part of the answer. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So, as we saw last time, it's discretionary. It's okay to remarry. Everything is new in Christ, regardless of those two backgrounds. And the Lord doesn't want you to continue burning with unfulfilled passion but only in the Lord. So you're only marrying someone who's a believer. If you can stay single, then stay single for the advancement of the kingdom. If you can't, then marry. Marriage is for most people. Now let's pick up with a third question. This is going to be new material for us this morning. Question three. If I'm married right now, what do I do? What are my options if I'm married right now? Remember, these are new believers. Uh, they're not talking about the past anymore. They're not talking about baggage. I was divorced uh, before I came to faith or my spouse died before I came to faith. Not talking about that in the past, okay? They're not talking about the, the mind that they had that was corrupted. Now they're saved and are thinking maybe physical intimacy is ungodly, so maybe they shouldn't have that relationship with their spouse. Paul says, listen, put that aside. We don't act single inside the marriage relationship. So all those things now were past. This is present, okay? These are new believers. They're not talking about the past, not talking about baggage. Paul's answering a question from a believer concerning a current situation. And that's an important nuance to pick up as you read this passage. Verse 10. But to the married, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord. Now, remember what Paul means about that. In, in other words, this is not new from you, not new for you. The Lord has already said this. So this is already recorded in the word. I'm not giving you new revelation. It's already set up for you. I'm about to tell you something God's already said. And so it could be a number of questions, and we'll answer them as we work our way through. Perhaps it's a question, hey, we're both believers. We don't get along. What do we do? Okay, we're both saved. We're, 
and we don't get along, what do we do? Or, or perhaps this thought, you know, I really want to be a committed Christian. My wife and I, or my husband and I, were married before we were believers. You know, I could serve the Lord much better single. Maybe I have this gift of singleness now, so I think we'll separate. Perhaps it's that thought. Perhaps it's, you know, I'm married to a non-believer. I'd like to get rid of my spouse. They really drag me down spiritually. What should I do? You know, I'd like to be free of my spouse that doesn't understand the things of God. You know, can I do that? Am I, is that okay with God? Maybe, as before, somebody talked about that in church. Maybe that's been kind of circulating around. You know, get rid of that partner. It'd be better for you. You know, you're married to Beelzebub anyway. Just let him go. You know, whatever. You don't understand what it's like married to this person. You know, is it okay if I divorce? And so maybe they'd married, they're married to an unsafe spouse, and they go to that support group. I don't know. You know, remember the conditions in the Roman world that we looked at several uh, weeks ago? The several different stages or, or ways that relationships were set up inside uh, the Roman culture, confari audio, which would be the type of relationship we would understand it would be very similar to the one that we have, where you have vows exchanged and rings to exchange and all of that, and, and uh, you have witnesses and all of those things. That would be the only one inside uh, the Roman structure that would have resembled uh, under our understanding of, of marriage and the one that the scripture gives us. You also had coemptio. Uh, the, uh, the wife is sold to her husband. They were never married. You have the usus relationship, which is two people living together, common law, never married. You have an ex-manus relationship. In other words, the wife never left the father's house, but is, is uh, in a relationship with the husband. And then you have a slave relationship, never married. And so all these kinds of relationships, only one would kind of partially line up with what we would understand about being married. So all these things are baggage. They're bringing this in. This is where they are now. This is a current relationship they perhaps are in. And maybe they're deciding it would be much better to be married to a believer for the sake of the children or something like that. So the question is, if I'm married right now, what do I do? What are my options? If I'm a believer and they're a believer, let's start with that, okay? Because that's where Paul starts. Look at verse 10. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave or you can have depart or divorce her husband. Those words all fit right there. Now, you already know this because the Lord's already said this. Okay, two believers, uh, they don't divorce. And Paul is right back to Matthew 5, and he's right back to Matthew 19, and he's right back to Genesis 1 and 2, and, and the same teaching we've already heard. If you're married, stay married. Now, these are two believers. How do I know that? Skip forward to verse 12, okay? Look at verse 12, and we'll know that these are two believers he's talking about first. What's he say in verse 12? But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, so obviously he's clarifying the first, the first relationship he's looking at are two believers, and that's where he starts. And then he moves and says, but by the way, if you're married to an unbeliever, and then he gives a set of instructions to concern that situation. So for both who are believers then, if you're married, he says, stay married. That's his answer to that question. If I'm married right now, what do I do? Two believers, stay married. Now here's the thing. You know what Paul knows. He knows some are going to divorce anyway. Two believers, they're going to divorce. And sometimes dealing with believers who've been in the faith a while is a little bit more difficult than compared to dealing with those who are new in the faith. Sometimes new in the faith tend to be very excited about doing what the Lord wants them to do, and they want to get their life straight, and they want to get everything straightened out. They've got some questions, and they'll act on what the Word says. Unfortunately, sometimes if you've been in the faith a while, you tend to minimize what the Lord wants in your life over time. You see what the Word says, but you're so used to acting a certain way that it's not really impacting you so much. And so Paul makes some very important qualifications here and makes sure they understand the options that they have. He knows that some are going to do it anyway, even though he says if there's two believers that are married, you don't divorce. 
So he confirms that's what his experience has been. So he says in verse 10, But to the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, the wife should not leave or depart or divorce her husband. Verse 11, But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce, used again synonymously with depart or leave, his wife. And the same rules, of course, apply. So, here's what Paul's saying. If you determine to disobey the Lord on point one, please stop right there. There's only two options open to believers here. One is remain married. The other one is remain what? Single. Okay? And there's only one legitimate reason for divorce for those who obey the Lord. And what is that? That's long-term unrepentant adultery on one of the spouses, with one of the spouses that we saw before. So, Paul's just saying, listen, to the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord. You've already heard this. A wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce. That's used synonymously then with leave up just above it, his wife. Okay? So, let me say this. It's not given by Paul as a suggestion. This is not, okay, well, this could be a good option for you, but, you know, do what you want. It's not just a pleasant thought. It's a directive. It's a command. And Paul says, listen, this is not the first time you've heard this. I'm just repeating to you what the Lord has already said. If you're married and you're both believers, no divorce. Jesus said it in Matthew 19. The Lord said it in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. So, it's not a pleasant thought. If you're married, you're both believers, no divorce. Except for the one reason that we know from Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Because of God's grace, divorce is allowed in this adulterous situation in lieu of, what do we see in, in the Old Testament? What normally happened if somebody committed adultery? They were put to death. So the, the Lord in his graciousness allowed divorce by way of uh, Moses' command, allowed them to be divorced because of the hardness of their heart. And we looked at all of that, and I'm not going to go back into it again, and you can catch up with that online if you'd like to see the background there. So if you do divorce, you have to remain single for life or be reconciled to the husband or the wife, or the wife to the husband or the husband to the wife. So as believers, if you get a divorce and it's not for adultery, and you don't remain formally married, and you don't get back together, and you marry again to someone else, what do you become? An adulterer. And the one who marries that person also becomes an adulterer. That's the situation that occurs when this happens. And this is exactly what was happening in the Jewish culture. And it was promoted during Jesus' time. It's the reason for the Pharisees' question in Matthew 19 to Jesus. Exactly the very situation that they questioned Jesus on because this was what was going on. It was exactly what was happening in Paul's time in Rome. It's exactly what happens now. So if you're married and you're both believers, stay married. And if you won't listen to that, Paul says, or if you feel that you can't stay married for some reason, stop there and don't go any further. So you divorce, but you can't remarry, okay? And really, beloved, I think when two believers understand that those are the only two options, if it's possible, many times they're going to choose Option one, and stay married. Now, sometimes that's not possible considering the situation. But option two then is open, Paul says, to remain single for life. Now, look back at verse 10. But to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not divorce her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That's very clear. We don't have to try to qualify that in any way. It's just straightforward. We understand who he's talking to, what the, who the audience is, what the approximate question was, and Paul's answer. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. Then look at verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. So who's he going to speak to next? He's going to speak to a mixed marriage. First he's talking to two people who are both believers. They've, they're married, they've come into the faith, both believers. They stay married or else they stay single for life. 
So he's going to move on to those other situations. So just a moment ago, to help us understand, he was first speaking to believers. Paul's going to deal with believers married to non-believers in a mixed marriage, okay? I'm a believer married to a non-believer. What do I do? Let's look at it. Verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. Now why does Paul have to comment? Well, because believers would know they're not to marry non-believers. They'd already know this, okay? So uh, here you have a unique situation, someone who's new in the faith. Even more than that, they're Gentile believers. So, in other words, Israel had the Mosaic Law. Uh, they understood that God had forbidden believers to marry non-believers in Israel's perspective. Jesus didn't teach about this. This is going to be new for you. And Paul, in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, is going to make it into a command. He's going to help them understand this governs your life. A believer doesn't marry a non-believer. Uh, a believer doesn't get in a close business relationship with a non-believer. Any kind of closely yoked relationship, Paul says, don't do this. And so, but here he's going to say, listen, I'm going to tell you this. This is going to be new for you. It's not something that you may understand as a Gentile believer, but here's the thing. You're in a mixed relationship. Now, the question inevitably will come up, should I get out of this marriage? I'm in a mixed relationship. I have a non-believing husband or I have a non-believing wife. This is an idol-worshiping society. Maybe the spouse worships idols. Maybe he cheats on his taxes. Maybe she has filthy language or very bad habits. Maybe he won't get up and come to church with her or ridicules what she believes, makes life difficult for her or for him, whatever the case may be. Now you have one spouse who's washed and free from sin. Uh, his eyes are open to the wickedness of the past or her heart is sensitive now uh, to the vile way she used to live and she, he still wants to live that way. And you get the sense, okay? She wants to minister and use her gifts to serve God. He wants to serve himself and live a life of pleasure. And it irritates him that she's so religious or vice versa. What do you do? What if you have children? Aren't they going to be corrupted by this relationship? What am I going to do now that I'm in Christ and this other person isn't? Wouldn't it be better to divorce and marry a Christian? That would be just so nice. And you can just kind of, you know, see their thoughts about that. It would just be a wonderful relationship if I could just marry a Christian and get rid of this loser. Okay? And so that's what they're thinking or something like that. So look at verse 12 again, if you would. Okay? But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother... Now, just so it doesn't confuse you, understand that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Some churches use, you know, they would call me Brother Parker, and I would call uh, Jim Brother Jim, and, and, and Sister Dorothy, and that kind of thing, okay? We don't do that here. Not that it's wrong to do it or not to do it, but many churches do that. And brothers and sisters in Christ is the way a familiar relationship goes. And so that's what Paul's saying. If any brother, so someone who's a believer inside the church, okay, that's who he's addressing. Any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. So we've already talked about two believers together now who are new in the faith. Now a brother has a wife who's a non-believer. And she consents to live with him. He must not divorce her. There's the command, isn't it? That's the answer. So what's the question? If I have a non-believing spouse, I've come to faith, they haven't. Uh, do I divorce them? Paul says, no, don't divorce her. If she wants to stay with you, if she's content to stay with you, what's Paul say? Stay married. That's his command. Verse 13. Look there if you would. And if a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. There's the other side. So the woman has a non-believing husband. He wants to stay. She allows him to stay. They stay in the relationship. So Paul says, what? Don't divorce an unbelieving spouse if they don't want out of the marriage. And then, of course, the first question of course, that might perhaps come up, but won't that be detrimental to me? Isn't that really going to stump my growth? 
it'll be too difficult for me. Won't it corrupt my walk with the Lord? Won't it destroy the close relationship I could have had with the Lord? Won't it destroy the ministry that I could do? It'll do all those things, won't it? And actually, the Bible says, instead of your relationship with God being destroyed, the other person's going to be encouraged and sanctified. Look at verse 14. So Paul automatically assumes what their response is going to be. That's going to be really hard on me. I'm going to stay married to this unbeliever. That's going to be super hard to do ministry. What if I have children? It's going to corrupt that. I mean, I'm, not, I'm going to be stunted in my growth. And Paul, Paul assumes this response. So here he goes, verse 14. He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Let's just break that down section by section. What does that mean? Does that mean they're saved when it says the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife? Of course not. There's only one way to salvation, right? By grace, through faith. So you have to profess and believe. So there's no way to salvation except for that. So just marrying a saved spouse doesn't automatically save you. Okay? It just means that the unsaved wife is set apart, and that's the idea of sanctified, set apart for blessing. Why? Because of the believing husband. And the unsaved husband is set apart for blessing because why? Because of the believing wife. So there's, a, there's an overflow of blessing. So the fear of being corrupted is baseless. In fact, Paul wants to make sure they understand the opposite is true. The unbeliever gets to be influenced positively by the believing spouse. And it's a lot like a garden. And it, perhaps if you have a garden, especially over the last couple of weeks, it hasn't rained at all. So you're carrying water pots out or you're tearing the hose out there and you're watering certain plants. But other plants are getting watered because you're watering the ones that you want to water. And that's, I think, the, a, a lot, an illustration that really gives us that understanding. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace, allowing a familiar or a matrimonial blessing to fall on unsaved spouses because they are married to a spouse who's born again. And that's what the Lord is trying to get across here through Paul. And beloved, those are really encouraging words to the saved spouse inside a marriage to an unsaved spouse because it can be very difficult. And that should be a wake-up call on the other side to a spouse in a marriage who's not born again but is married to the spouse who is born again. Do you realize that you're getting blessing that you would not have received simply for the fact that you are married to a redeemed person who's come to faith? You're getting blessing and protection and, and uh, set-apartness for blessing from the Lord just because of your relationship to them. Eugene Peterson wrote the message and put out by Nav Press. It gives us a great appreciation of the correct understanding. You can just listen to it. You can read in your copy of God's Word, verse 12. I'll just read from the message. It says, for the rest of you in mixed marriages. So he picks right up on that is the issue. So the first section Paul deals with in 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11, have to do with believing spouses uh, in a relationship uh, of marriage. This is mixed marriages. Christians married to non-Christians. So he clarifies, we have no explicit command from the master. In other words, Jesus or the Lord hasn't already said anything about this. So this is what you must do. If you are a man with a wife who is not a believer, but who still wants to live with you, hold on to her. If you're a woman with a husband who is not a believer, but he wants to live with you, hold on to him. The unbelieving husband shares to an extent in the holiness or the set-apartness, not the holiness of salvation, just the set-apartness for some blessing of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is likewise touched by the holiness of her husband. So that kind of captures that idea. Instead of the believer's walk with the Lord being destroyed, it's actually enriched because the unbeliever receives some earthly blessing. Instead of an unbelieving spouse messing up the home, a believer in the unbelieving home brings blessing to that home. That's what actually happens. And that, I think, is what we would expect. With the power that comes from salvation on the life of the individual, there's an overflow, isn't there? There's a blessing because you're even around that person. 
And as you're walking with the Lord as a believing spouse, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. God will continue to pour out his blessing and his protection and his love and his affection on you. And some of that will water the one who's one flesh with you, perhaps even bringing them to salvation. Remember, we're not talking about a believer going out and marrying a non-believer. Okay? So don't think in your mind, well, maybe that's going to bring a blessing to them. I'll go ahead and marry this non-believer. Listen, the Lord's already said that's not to happen. God forbids us doing that. The context is a spouse who came to Christ, and at this point, the other spouse has not. Look at verse 14 again, if you would. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Let's just deal with that last little section right there concerning children. Instead of the unbeliever destroying your faith, you're going to bring a God-centered influence on that person, and it works for your children as well, and that follows. The presence of one born-again parent in the home brings protection and benefit to the children and works to defeat the negative spiritual influence of the world. And with the many blessings it brings, one of them could be salvation to the children. So he's assuming a worry that's going to come on behalf of his first command, which is, if they want to stay, let them stay. And he's saying, listen, you bring a blessing and a watering and a security to them they wouldn't normally have apart from a saved spouse, and you're bringing that same type of blessing to children, and some of the results of that blessing could be they're coming to faith. As you walk with the Lord, Colossians 3.16, as you desire to be in fellowship with him, as you come, submit to his authority, that is the issue. That blessing will overflow, perhaps bring others to salvation. So if you were saved and your husband was not, or you're currently married to an unbeliever and they want to stay with you, don't divorce. Now here's another variable. Look at verse 15. Another situation that might occur in this mixed marriage. Okay, look at verse 15. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, once again, departs, removes himself, divorces, all those things are used synonymously. If they leave, let them leave. Let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So it goes both ways. So if the wife has a non-believing husband, he wants to stay, don't divorce. If he wants to leave, let them leave. If the husband has an unbelieving wife and she wants to stay, let her stay. And there's blessing that comes from your relationship to the Lord that will overflow on her and children. But if she wants to leave, Paul says, let her leave. God hasn't called you to a life of fighting and warring and pleading with an unsaved person. Uh, God isn't requiring you to wage war. He isn't requiring you to live in a state of constant flux. He isn't uh, requiring you to, uh, to hang on to somebody who doesn't want to go. He's not requiring you to plead with someone if they'll please stay with you and somehow compromise yourself in order to get the unbeliever to stay. He's just saying, listen... The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. If the unbelieving one wants to leave or divorce or remove themselves, that, those are all used synonymously, let them leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. Bondage to what? The law that governs marriage, the law that governs divorce. Okay? You're under that, underneath, you fall out from under that requirement to stay married. God has called us to peace. That's what it means. The brother and sister or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. That's a very important phrase, and I want to clarify it so that you can get it straight in your own mind what that not under bondage means, because it applies to three different situations inside the marriage relationship, and that's what we're talking about. God's understanding, God's teaching on human relationships, on singleness and marriage. 
So turn in Ro to Romans chapter 7, verse 3. Would you do that, please? Because we'll really define, and I'll put it on the screen too, but I'd like you to see it because it's a great cross-reference. Romans chapter 7, verse 3, we're going to see this explained. Okay, this, this uh, very important phrase, not under bondage. Chapter 7, uh, verse 3 is where we're going to pick up, and I'm going to back up to verse 1 so that you can see the whole context, okay? The brother or sister is not under bondage. If the unsaved spouse wants to go, let them go. You're not under bondage. Now look at Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, see where I am, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So we're talking about under the law, bondage under the law, requirements of the law. The law is the issue here. Verse 2, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. There's that same type of phrasing. They're bound by law to the husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law. So again, same type of phrasing. Not under bondage to the law, in other words, concerning the husband. Verse 3, so then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so in other words, not under bondage to the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Let's stop right there, because the same phrasing is used, and that's important to help us define what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First thing I want you to understand, the marriage bond is broken by death. We understand that from... Uh, from the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 7, we understand that from Romans chapter 7, verse 3. The marriage bond is broken by death. The surviving spouse is free to remarry and released from the stigma of being called one who is an adulterer. So you, you're married, your spouse dies, you're free from that marriage, you can be remarried, and you're not considered an adulterer or an adulteress because your, your wife or your spouse has passed away. That's confirmed numerous places, and I want to just give you a few places so you confirm that up in your mind. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 we looked at that last time. We're going to look at it again in just a few minutes. Verse 39 says this, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. Once again, bound to what? The law that governs marriage. That's exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans 7. So he, the wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. And then Paul puts this very important caveat on there, only in the Lord. So you can be remarried if your husband or your wife dies. But they have to be a believer. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Again, a great illustration. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, the marriage bond is broken by death, and the marriage bond is broken by adultery. The offended spouse is free to remarry, released from the stigma of being one who's called an adulterer. You see? Very important language there. We want to make sure we pick up on it. That's confirmed by Jesus' teaching that we looked at and we traced back to the Old Testament in Matthew 19.9 where he uses God's original plan to answer the Pharisees. In Romans 19, or Matthew 19.9 he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Except for immorality, where you are no longer under the bondage of the law. Do you see? Very important point to make. And now we get here, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, and we're shown a third place that the marriage bond is broken. How is it broken? Yet, if the unbelieving spouse, I'm sorry, let's go one more. If the unbelieving spouse departs or removes himself 
or divorces, all those things used synonymously, let him leave. Yet, the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. What bondage, beloved? Because we just got through looking at two other situations to talk about bondage. Bondage to the law that governs marriage. Okay, bondage to the law that says you must remain married or else be considered an adulterer or adulteress if you divorce. You're released from that stigma if your spouse dies. You're released from that stigma if the marriage bond is broken by adultery by one of the spouses. You're released from that stigma if the unsaved spouse wants to go. Same exact language, same exact circumstances at the end. The Bible always assumes remarriage. It always assumes that you're going to remarry. And so it gives the final outcome, if you choose to do this line, that you stay on this tangent, what will the final outcome be? If you divorce for some reason besides adultery and you remarry, the final outcome will be you'll be an adulterer or adulteress. If you divorce your spouse and you remarry because of adultery at the other spouse, then you are not considered an adulterer. It always assumes remarriage. If your husband or your wife passes away, you can remarry, and you're not considered an adulterer or adulteress. Why? Because it assumes remarriage, and the final outcome is you can remarry. And finally, we get to this one. The marriage bond is broken by the unbelieving spouse leaving. Same language, you're not under bondage. The offended spouse is free to remarry and released from that stigma of being called an adulterer or an adult, adulteress. So death, adultery, the unbelieving spouse leaving is the issue. Those are the issues that release someone from the bondage of marriage. When the bond is broken in any of those ways, according to the scripture, as a biblical understanding, the Christian is free to remarry, but only another believer. When divorce occurs, remarriage is always assumed. That's why the Bible gives the final result of what will happen. When a biblical divorce occurs, where it is permitted, then remarriage is also permitted. And the Bible always says it gives that exception. You're not under bondage in those areas. So God tells you, stay together unless the unbeliever wants out. If they want to stay, let them stay. They receive an indirect blessing by being your spouse. And it may lead to their salvation, and it's the same with your children. But if your salvation and your love for God and your circumspect behavior causes your spouse to despise you, and they want to leave you, then let them leave. God doesn't require you to sacrifice biblical principles to stay inside a marriage. Live a godly life to its fullest. Obey God in all things. Don't say, don't say this. Don't say, if I keep doing these biblical things, if I keep going to church, I'm just going to irritate my unsaved spouse, so I'm going to moderate my behavior a little bit. I'm not going to get involved like I could because it just makes them mad and it makes them more angry. God doesn't expect you to do that. Okay, Acts 5.29, you remember what the apostles said? Peter and the apostles answered, we have to obey God rather than man. Ultimately, you obey what the Lord says. Wives, even though the Lord says you submit to your husband, it's as unto the Lord. So to the, at the point your husband is leading you in a godly manner, submit to him. When he departs from the godly manner, you no longer are under that authority. You submit to the Lord because you obey God rather than man, you see. And that takes care of a lot of questions that come up inside a marriage relationship, particularly a mixed marriage relationship. Do what the Lord's instructed you to do. You don't keep a marriage together by violating God's principles. That's a very liberating principle from the Lord. And those three things are very important for us to understand because if they've happened in the past or happened currently and they fall into those three categories, the Bible allows remarriage. There's no stigma attached to that, you see? The Lord's not going to say it's okay to remarry and then condemn you later because you did if he gives you that freedom, you see? So live your life for God's glory. A Christian 
who compromises is not going to be in God's will. And neither is a fighting, confrontational home between a believer and a non-believer where the believer's begging the non-believer to stay. That's not God's will either. Now, just to illustrate that, Paul's teaching, Peter, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 1, really kind of firms that up for the wives. As they, you know, if, they want to, if the husband wants to stay, let him stay. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they be won, by, uh, won without a word by, your, by the behavior of their wives, verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. In other words, not just dressing yourself up, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For this is the way in former times the holy women also who, opened, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have also become her children if you do what's right without frightening by any fear. So in other words, wife, if you're married to an unsaved man, live a godly life. If they want to stay, let them stay. If they want to go, let them depart, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But ultimately, just hope in the Lord, do what he says, be faithful to his word, obey him first and above all things. And in that way, perhaps you will win them over. Okay, so Peter just kind of confirms exactly what we read Paul say just a little bit ago. Okay, and just as a joke, sometimes I remind my wife of 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 6, calling him Lord, small l, okay. And I always do that when she's a little irritated at me, and I just throw that in there, just you know, mix, the, mix it up a little bit more. You can try that, guys, if you want, but not on Mother's Day or whatever. Okay. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it talks to the men. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone who's weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I quote that to men all the time. You want to know how to fix a lot of the problems inside your relationship? Just look at yourself in the mirror and say, am I doing 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 on a, regular, on a regular daily basis? Living with your wife in an understanding way as a, and honoring her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Those are the ways that you deal with an unsafe spouse. Those are the ways you deal with a saved spouse. Do all that, and if the non-believing spouse will not come to salvation but destroys the union by words and by actions and wants out, they want to leave. You're not bound to that marriage any longer. You're free to let them go. Now look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, if you would. We're going to be a wrap up our time together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Very important principles. God has called you to peace. You're not under bondage. We understand the language. Romans 12, verse 18. Very important passage here. Remember, if we, we read that if possible, as far as it depends on you, be it, live at peace with all men. You remember when we studied that in a Roman study? As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. We do everything possible to be at peace with others. If you're married to an unsafe spouse, do everything you can to be at peace with them. Don't compromise your walk with the Lord, but do everything you can to live at peace with them. But it won't always come because it doesn't always depend on you, does it? Some of the things that lend themselves to peace will depend on the other person. If they're not willing to be peaceful and they want to go, then you're allowed to let them go. Because it depends on their responses and their attitudes in some way. And some might say, you know, if I do that, if I do let them go, they might not come to know Christ. And that puts a burden, an extra burden on you. If I let them go, they may never come to faith. So Paul answers that. He, he sees that worry just like he did earlier. And so he brings that to their attention. Look back at verse 16 of 1 Corinthians uh, 7. Would you do that? Look in your copy of God's Word. No slide for this one. 
So in their mind, when Paul says, if they want to go, let them go, somebody may say, if I let them go, they may never come to faith. And they have a burden for the lost. They know their husband or wife is lost. So they had that worry. So Paul gives this, them answer, this answer to help them understand not to worry. How do you know, he says, verse 16, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And what's the implied answer? You don't. Exactly. You don't know. So if they want to stay, you can let them stay. If they want to go, let them go. You're not bound. We've already looked at three questions. Maybe you could see after Paul answers these three questions now. I'm sure many of them would ask this next question. And so Paul just kind of sums up what he's been saying. So question four, you can see this in your notes. Does salvation impact the marital status? What's the answer? He's already covered all these different possibilities and scenarios. The answer is not at all. Now, your understanding of marriage has changed now that you're a believer. Uh, your responsibilities in marriage have changed now that you understand you're a believer and what God requires of you to the, for your spouse. Your interaction with one another has changed and the way you deal in grace and mutual submission to one another. But it shouldn't change your marital status with the exceptions of the two things we just looked at. If the unsafe spouse wants to go, let them go. It, but that won't depend on you. It'll depend on them. Now look at verses 17 through 24. And the great thing that we're going to do right now is because we've laid all the groundwork, we can just walk our way through all the way to the end with very little stops. Because you understand all the, uh, the, the assumed knowledge that the Corinthians should have had. You understand the culture and the situation that they're in. You understand what Paul has taught and what Jesus has taught in Matthew 19 and what we saw in Matthew 5 and what we saw in Genesis 1 and, and 2. So you've got all that information. You understand what Paul is saying to them. Now we can walk our way through slowly and we can see this illustrated so clearly. Okay? Look at verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one as God has called each, so Paul just clarifies that, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. In other words, every time this question is asked, Paul says, in every single church, I say the same thing. Whatever God has assigned to you, in whatever state God has called you, whatever gift he has given you, walk in it. If he's given you the gift of singleness, walk in singleness. If he's given you the gift of marriage, rejoice and walk in marriage. Whatever it is, if he's... You should stay single if he's given you singleness. If, if you were saved single, stay single unless you need to get married. If he's not giving you the gift of singleness, in other words, he's not, not only giving you the desire to stay single, but also remove the, 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 the desire to be married and the desire to have a physical intimate relationship, then you should get married if he hasn't taken those things away. If you were saved married, you should stay married. God will let you understand what he's called you to do by his Holy Spirit. But in general... Getting saved is not a reason to change your status. And that's what I tell all the churches, Paul says. Getting saved is not a reason to change your status, any of your status. And so he keeps on going. Look at verse 18. And we looked at this briefly last time. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. And you really can't do anything about that anyway. So that just applies everywhere else as well. Just stay wherever you are. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision, verse 19, is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Whatever condition, in other words, you were that you were in when you were called, everything is new in your spiritual walk. Stay as you were. What matters now? Uncompromisingly following God's commands. That's what matters. Whatever God says, do it. Stay in whatever relationship you were in, if you can, and do it. Verse 20. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. There you go. 
If you were called to salvation and saved, or you're called to salvation married, stay married. If you're called to salvation single and you can stay single, stay single. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about that. But if you were able to become free, do it. Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. It doesn't really matter because if you're a slave to a man and you were called to salvation, now you're a slave to Christ, although he set you free from all of your sin. So, in other words, just stay how you are. If you can be free as a slave, be free. But if you can't, don't worry about it. Don't sell yourself out on, on what men think. Do what God wants you to do. Do not become, in other words, slaves of men. You were bought with a price. Verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So is the marriage status impacted by salvation at all? Not at all, Paul says. Only you know from God whether you should stay single or marry. Salvation shouldn't change those things. How does salvation impact my life in general? What matters is keeping the commands of God. Don't worry about the job you have unless it violates God's commands. Remember, you were bought with a high price. Don't serve men. Remain and persevere with God. That's Paul's summary. Look at question five in your notes. If I have never married, should I stay single? I've never married. So in light of everything we know about our culture, wouldn't it be better to remain single for life? I mean, if I've never been married, maybe I'm in one of those other relationships we talked about in the Roman culture. Maybe I've never been married, period, and never in any relationship whatsoever. Uh, if I've never been married, should I stay single? So you may be in a coemptio relationship, sold to a husband but never married. You may be in a useless relationship, a common law relationship. It doesn't, it's not marriage. You may be in an ex-manus relationship, so you never left your father's house, but there's some relationship between you and some man. Maybe you're a slave relationship, uh, never married, but in some kind of intimate relationship. What should I do? If I've never married, should I stay single? Look at verse 25. We'll illustrate Paul's answer. Now, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of God, is trustworthy. So, in other words, Jesus hasn't commented on this. This is going to be new for you. And by the way, Paul says, the Lord's made me trustworthy. So you can trust what I'm about to tell you. Verse 26, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Once again, Paul goes just back to the first one he always says with everything. We're talking about single people now. We're talking about virgins, and that's God's word for those who have never been married. In particular, in God's in God's ideal, those who have never had a sexual relationship, period. Okay? So, but those who have never been married, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think that it's good, in view of a pres the present distress, that it's good for a man to remain as he is. In other words, difficult times are hard enough when you're single, let alone when you're married and have children. And in the Roman world, of course, Christians killed all the time. People lost their spouses. Very difficult time, of course, to live as a married person. Once again, here's Paul's gift coming through. If you're single and you can remain that way without the temptation and the sinfulness that waits at the door of temptation, then stay that way. And remember, Paul says, it's going to be rough enough. It's going to be rough to have a wife or a husband. If you can stay single, if God has given you that gift, if you've been single all along, you're a virgin, never been married, then follow through. Verse 27, look there. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. So he's just reminding them, listen, you don't get to be single now but if you came in married. Singleness inside marriage is not okay. And he started with that back in the first couple of verses of chapter 7. Even though there are benefits to singleness, they're not to divorce. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. Don't seek a wife. If you don't need to be married, then stay single. If you've been divorced, then don't, don't, stay, don't seek to be married unless, if you can stay single. 
Paul's just summing up what he's already said, some teaching from the different scenarios, just kind of wrapping them all up in a nice package. But if you marry, you have not sinned. Now, but if you marry, so who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Married before salvation, divorced, or a widow, or uh, unsafe spouse has left. If you marry, you've not sinned. If the virgin marries, that means someone who's never been married, she's not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. So he just sums up all the different possible backgrounds. If you marry, whatever your background is, if you were divorced before you came to faith, and you've got a marriage back in your background, but a divorce, and now you're single. If your spouse died, and now you're single. Whatever it is, okay? If you've never been married ever, and whatever it is, Paul says, if you marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, they've not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. I'm trying to spare you. In other words, there's no sin involved in marrying, and if you have the gift of singleness, there's no sin involved in being single. Two different categories of people. Now, if you marry, that's speaking of one loose from a wife, verse 27. Biblical terms, of course. If you're both believers, there has to be a biblical reason for that divorce. If a virgin marries, that's speaking of one who's never been married. There's going to be trouble in this life. And those who are married understand this. Two people, two different agendas, two different wills. Trying to come together and work out life definitely be difficulty. You haven't sinned. Just know that sometimes it's going to be rough. Paul wants to make sure they have, understand all the scenarios. The flesh will get in the way sometimes. And Paul just says this. Look at verse 29. Just keep this in mind. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as, those that, as though they had none. Verse 30, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess. Verse 31, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Stop right there. Now, you understand what Paul's getting at. It's not that the marriage bound no longer exists. He's not saying, it's not, act as if you're not married. Because he just got through telling you, if you're married, fulfill your obligations to one another and stay married. It's not that the marriage should be treated as trivial. Just inside your marriage, keep eternal perspective. Your marriage doesn't consume your entire life. It is a very important part of your life, but the most important thing is to keep eternal perspective. Verse 30, sorrow shouldn't keep you from serving. Not that it isn't important. You just keep it in perspective. And on the other side, rejoicing shouldn't keep you from serving. Worldly interest shouldn't swallow you up. So Paul just kind of takes all of those little things that tend to consume our entire life. It's our employment or, or just entertainment or whatever it happens to be. Just keep this all in perspective. Your marriage or your singleness or whatever it is. Remember, keep this all in perspective, eternal perspective. It's part of this life. And this life is what? Passing away. This life is passing away. Everything we do is in light of the kingdom to come. One of the great themes of Scripture. The same thing applies to marriage. Everything we do, we look forward to the kingdom that's coming. This is the shadow. That's the reality. This is temporary. That's eternal. You're in preparation for that kingdom. Everything we do in relation to what our, our, our desires and our, uh, everything that we're connected to here, realize that in light of eternal perspectives, is temporary. Okay? Don't worry about those things. All these things are passing away. So is marriage. And the Apostle Paul gives some other advice as well. That includes advice to those who've never been married. Don't worry about these things. He starts out, look at verse 32. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. Verse 33. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. Verse 34, 
and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried, so that's someone who's been married before and divorced, or married before and the husband has passed away, or married before and an unbelieving spouse has left, whatever situation that may uh, apply to, and the virgin, that's someone who's never been married and never in a relationship, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. So formerly married and those who've never been married care about the things of the Lord. And to Paul, that unmarried or never married caring about the things of the Lord is a truism. So they're single, so their main object is pleasing the Lord. They're single and they have all the time and the resources to give to pleasing the Lord. That's a truism for Paul. If you're single and the Lord's giving you that singleness as a gift, you're pleasing the Lord in everything you do. It's an automatic trait of a Christian singleness. You see that? If God's giving you the gift of singleness, that's an automatic trait. You're interested in pleasing the Lord. Concerned about the things of the Lord. When you're married, Paul says on the other side, you're going to be preoccupied with family and the needs of your spouse, and that's expressed as a truism as well. So you should be. If you're married, you're going to be occupied with the things of your spouse and your family. That's a truism. So what if I've never married? Should I stay single? Answer, you should only stay single if you've been given that gift. Once again, same thing Paul's been saying. And you can secure soul devotion to the Lord. Otherwise, marry. You haven't sinned. It's okay. Now look at verse 35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. I'm just saying this to you because I want you to understand that either way, in light of all that you're doing, you're living for that future kingdom. And if you're single, you're devoted to the Lord and all that he wants from you. And if you're married, you're going to have a, a split devotion. And both of those things are true. Now look at verse six, or question six. It's a question from a worried parent. And of course, it's coming from a culture where parents had much more involvement in who their children married and, who, and whether they stayed single and all those kinds of things. And they set up all that stuff. And so here is a question from a worried parent. Am I wrong in wanting the best for my daughter and requiring her obedience and abstaining from marriage? So a father's looking at a younger daughter. He's saying, okay, she should just stay single. He's making that decision for her. And all the daughters are going, oh my gosh. You know, dad, get out of it already, okay? Wickedness of the world, zealousness, you know, of fathers who are new Christians, you know, and want their daughter to have the best possible life. And Paul says, listen, you're solely devoted to the Lord. If you're single, this is going to be best for you. You know, so this is what I'm deciding for you. So Paul pulls them up short, okay? And all the, all the daughters are going, Whew, okay? Look at verse 36. As they read this letter, they're like, wow. Exactly what I was telling my dad, or what I was thinking about telling my dad. But if any man thinks he's acting unbecomingly, look at verse 36. Toward his virgin daughter, if she's past her youth, in other words, she's mature. If it must be so, she, in other words, she needs to be married, because that's the topic. Let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But, verse 37, he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, in other words, she doesn't desire to get married, She's not chambering to be married and have a spouse and have a family, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter. In other words, keep her from a relationship because she doesn't desire to be married. He'll do well. Verse 38. So then both he who gives his virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give his marriage, her in marriage will do better. Why? Paul says because singleness is soul devotion to the Lord, but it's a gift. If the daughter wants to be married and she's of age, let her marry. If she doesn't want to be married and you're committed to taking care of her, and that's the thing, okay? He says, uh, 
He says this in verse 37, he has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter. In other words, he's going to take care of her. So he's not like, okay, you're going to be single and now I'm booting you out of the house and you got to go do your thing. He's going to take care of her. She's going to, she wants to be single. He's going to watch over her, provide for her needs, make sure he has a place to live. She's protected from uh, unsavory characters and whatever. He's going to take care. He's taking that responsibility. He's confirmed in his mind. She doesn't want to be married and, and I'm good with her not being married. She wants to serve the Lord. I'm going to make sure she's okay. Then Paul says, that's okay. In fact, that can be better, he says, than giving your daughter away in marriage. Why is it better? Because when your daughter marries, she's going to have a split devotion, and sometimes it's hard, and being married to a, uh, somebody else with a, their own will can be difficult. Everything Paul just got through saying, okay? Now, look at question seven. Now that I'm a believer, what happens if my spouse dies? That's the end, okay? Paul's covered everything, and now he's going to cover this, and we've already looked at it because we had to see it in other places. He's talking to believers, of course. Believers get to talking, and you can kind of see this, perhaps if you're a widow or a widower, you may be thinking this, now that we're both born again, you know, my spouse was born again, they've passed on, I know where they are, they're with the Lord, they're waiting to be reunited with their earthly body, and they're going to live in the new earth forever, so should I remarry? I mean, they're alive with the Lord, I'm alive on the earth, and those are the questions, you know, what would my former spouse think if I got married? What would everyone else think? Here's one of the answers to that question, beloved. Do you think your former spouse knows God's plan a lot better than they did on earth? Yes. Now that they're in heaven with him, do you think they understand this relationship and this foreshadowing of, of Christ's relationship to the church that happens inside of a marriage? You bet they do. Do you think that former spouse who's in heaven are worried that you're going to remarry? Not in the least. Why? Because all those things are passing away. They, they're not going to last past this earth. Are they concerned about that? Not a bit. Look at verse 29. This I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of the world, this world is passing away. What happens if my spouse dies? Well, the wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, and now he no longer is living on earth. Marriage is for life. That's how God designed it, this physical life on earth. Paul wants to make sure that the end of his answers about practical marriage questions, that everyone remembers that. It was that understanding that prompted Jesus' disciples to say, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. One man for one woman. So his disciples are like, wow, that's pretty tough. God's design. Good words from Paul. It's forever, but only in this life. Okay? But if her husband's dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Look at verse 40. But in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. And Paul puts that in there. Why? Because he's single, and that's his first default. If her husband or his wife have passed away, and they can remain single for soul devotion to the Lord, then do it. Otherwise, get married. Neither of them have sinned. It's okay. Just in the Lord. Marry in the Lord. So it's okay to remarry, but only to a believer. Stay single if you have the gift. Now, that's not the end of the questions for Paul. It's just the end of the questions that concern, in particular, singleness and marriage the questions go on through chapter 11 now let's just connect it to us okay let's just connect it to us and one of these days i'm going to put this in a little flyer we can put it in the back these most questions come here and we've answered these questions so i just want to kind of sum this up how does this apply to you okay paul's given instruction to the church in corinth it transfers here very easily okay what if i'm married if i'm married to a believer what stay married if you can't do that for some reason Stay single for life. 
If I'm married to a non-believer, what? Stay married. If the non-believer wants to divorce, let them divorce. You're free. What if I'm single? Well, you could be single because God made you that way for the service of Christ, sole devotion to him. You don't have the desire to get married. You don't have the temptation for passion. What are you to do? Stay single. God's given you that gift. You could be single in a holding pattern. In other words, you're not going to stay that way. You're just single temporarily until the Lord brings someone into your life because you've not been given the gift of singleness. What does scripture say to you? Well, we've not looked at it today, but we looked at it in chapter 6. Pursue purity. Pursue purity while you're single. Marry using the Lord's standards. As long as the Lord works out that timing in your life, don't avoid it because it's a lifelong commitment. Get into it because it's a lifelong commitment. Marriage is for most people. Only in the Lord you're going to marry. Concentrate on being the right person, not looking for the right person, so that when they can recognize you when God brings along that right person at the right time. Okay? You could be single because of divorce. What does Scripture say to you? If you were divorced before you were a believer, or you were divorced from an adulterous situation, or you're divorced from a non-believer who left, first check and see if God's given you the gift of singleness. If he hasn't, you're free to marry. Marriage is for most people. You could be single because of the death of a spouse. What does scripture say to you? Check and see if God's given you the gift of singleness. If he hasn't, you're free to marry. Don't worry about it, but only in the Lord. And that only leaves one other category. If you're divorced as a believer, you had a non-biblical divorce as a believer, no biblical grounds. In other words, there was no adultery. Your other, the, the, other sp the spouse was a saved person, and you got divorced, and you didn't have that biblical right to divorce because of adultery. I, you were married, perhaps, when you had no grounds. Then you're an adulterer or an adulteress, and that's where it leaves you. And you're a sinner. Welcome to the Association of Sinners, including everybody who sits in this room and stands in this room. You did not submit to God's law as a Christian. You were divorced for no biblical grounds. You were married with no biblical grounds. You are in a union that the Bible defines as an adulterous union. And you only have one option. You have to admit that sin to the Lord. You have to confess it to him as disobedience with true sorrow and repentance and stay in that marriage. And you work to make that marriage work and honoring to the Lord and see if he won't make sweet out of the bitter and see if he won't give back the years as he told his people the locusts have eaten. Let me tell you something, beloved. It's very easy, and warn you, I guess, it's very easy for those who haven't had sin in this area to sit in judgment over those who have. Because we forget the sins of our own life. And it goes for a lot of other things as well. Those are sins that the Lord is in the business of forgiving. But you have to recognize it and ask for forgiveness with repentance and turning away from any further sinfulness. Why do I tell you this? It's just part of the whole counsel of the Word of God. It lands right where we are in our culture. And perhaps in your own mind, you're married now to a safe spouse, and you're thinking about divorcing, and you don't have biblical grounds. Listen, I'll just tell you right now, you're headed for heartbreak on your part, open sinfulness against the Lord and chastening from Him. And you'll be in, an, if you remarry, which is likely the case, you'll be in an open adulterous or adulterous relationship. Don't go there. Lord specifically has said that's not to happen. If you're two married believers, the only option you have, if you won't obey the command not to divorce, is to stay single for life. So keep that in mind. I want you to know that. You know, it's important for God's people perish for lack of, of uh, knowledge. And so we want to know what the Word says. No matter what our culture may say, and what book writers may say, and whatever. This is what the Word of God says. 
There's three reasons why you can be separated from the bondage of the law to marriage. We gave them to you. The other ones are not options. So you don't use the words in your marriage. Don't say, I'm gonna divorce you someday. I'm gonna, don't open those doors. And if you've already opened those doors and you've married to somebody else and it wasn't a biblical divorce, admit it to the Lord and ask for forgiveness and he'll forgive you and make sweet out of the bitter. And that's why we study that. It's not easy for, any more easy for me to say it to you than it is for you to hear it. It's because I love you, we're going through it. And we're gonna make sure that you understand. And take some time with it so you can support it and understand why you, under, why you believe what you believe and why you do what you do. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just have to admit what you've done. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and the, his word is not in us. He's in the sin-forgiving business. Mark 3.28, Truly I say to you, all manner of sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. All manner of sin. God is just like that, isn't he? We're in a room full of broken people and people who've messed up. We can be restored if you come to him and admit it. So what's your response going to be? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for our time to be in the word. We're very grateful to you for your love for us, for your ideal, the standard you set up for us. And, and Lord, as we're maybe perhaps just coming into this time of life, we want to come in with our eyes open. Understanding your rules governing us, how we're to conduct our relationships as single or as married. And so, Father, I pray for our young folks, our, our uh, college age, our, uh, those who are uh, perhaps in that time period of their life. Give them wisdom. Help them to know what your word says. Give them a discernment as they, as they get to know uh, different people. Help them to look for those traits of godliness and faithfulness, uh, a word-saturated life, uh, authentic uh, living that shows in the way they dress, the way they conduct themselves and how they talk and what they listen to and who they associate with, all those things which give us trademark fruit of where the heart really is. And Father, for those who are here, perhaps miss God's standards in some way, uh, I pray as they know now what to do, I pray that they will follow through with that. They may have blessing and live in the light of your blessing, in the light of your word, knowing what you have saved them from. Help uh, those who perhaps have had, not had problems in this area not to in any way set in judgment, but to understand what the word says and be clear about how we uh, deal with this issue, these issues. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your salvation provided through the death of your son who was powerful enough to forgive all sin, all manner of sin. You're in the sin-forgiving business. That's good because we're sin-committing people. Thank you for making us new, giving us understanding of your word. Thank you for our guests who are here with us. Pray that you'll bless them as they also have taken part in fellowship and time in your word. We give you praise today. All God's people said, amen.